I'm going to ask a question, and I need you to raise your hand and keep it up as long as the question applies to you. How many of you have been a Christian for a year? Five years. Ten. Fifteen. Twenty. Thirty. Forty. We still have a few hands up. I'm not trying to point out everyone's age. Just the fact that apparently here uh, there's Christians of varying degrees of age. But that plays a little bit of a role in the subject for tonight. Building each other up and specifically building each other up in the Lord is what we're looking at. And you just think about that. Here uh, we've got kind of a variety. Uh, It seems like most have been Christians here for over 10 years at least. What do you do with that thought? You've been a Christian for a good while and you're, you're wondering, well, how can I build other Christians up? That's a good question. And hopefully tonight we can, uh, we can gain a good answer to the question. I'm going to probably approach the lesson from a little bit different angle uh, than you might expect or than we normally might approach a question like this. But I want to bring up a few things first. We live in a time where division is rampant. It's rampant certainly in the world, although I have to say I am happy when we can see things in the news. If you uh, have been paying attention lately, North and South Korea, the president's getting together, the leaders getting together, we should say. That's, that's, a, that's a hopeful sign, isn't it? That's a comfort to see something like that in the world, which is so full of, of wickedness, full of darkness. But you know, Division's not only rampant in the world, it's also rampant in the church, sadly. That's not anything new. It's been that way since the first century. But what I want to point out to you, we're considering how can we build each other up. And in order to answer that question, we have to go to Scripture. The first thing that I need to point out to you is that Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed for our unity. You and me, all of us here, he prayed for our unity, specifically uh, an occasion which he did this was when he was just about to go to the cross to die for us. You could think about all of the things on Jesus's mind. And we know for for uh, for sure, for certain, when he's in the garden with the disciples and he's asking them to stay and watch with him three times, he asks the father to take this away from him. Three times he says, not my will, but your will be done. We know he understands what he's about to go through. And yet in John 17, one of the longest prayers we have recorded of Jesus, he over and over again is concerned for not only his disciples right then and there, but for his disciples to come. You and me. Here we are, Christians, many generations later, removed from those who walked with Jesus. And yet he was praying for our unity. And the type of unity that he was praying for is very important for us to understand. It wasn't a unity he prayed for based on our personalities matching up. A unity based on a few doctrines that we agree on. The unity that he prayed for us to have is the same unity that he shared with the Father. That Jesus the Son had with God the Father. That's the type of unity, that's the type of bond that our Savior prayed for us to have with each other. That we would be one just as he is one with the Father. That's an important calling to keep in mind. The second thing I want to point out to you is something that Paul brings up in the book of Ephesians. 
In the book of Ephesians, and uh, specifically there in just the first few verses, we'll go ahead and, and look at that here. Paul's building up this message. In the first three chapters, he points out these, these really high demands and high callings that we have from the Lord. He talks about how we were once dead in our trespasses, but God brought us to life. How in chapter 1, we are to be to the praise of His glory. Chapter 2, we are to be witnesses to those who are not of God, of His kindness, of His mercy and grace. Chapter 3, we're supposed to be witnesses to the spiritual beings in the heavenly places. Those all solid, sound like really tall orders, and they are. This is something Paul says. He changes gears. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to pre preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. Starting off, he says, you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What's fantastic about what he does here, chapter 4 you could probably split into two main sections. They're both talking about walking worthy, but the first section talks about how we as a church together are to walk in a manner worthy. That's how he starts it off. So this walk that we have, we can understand it, we're connected. We're walking together. We're not alone. And that's a comforting way to start off this directive, isn't it? To know that there is so much that is being asked of us. At the end of chapter 3, he says we can rely on God. At the beginning of chapter 4, he says you can rely on each other. And then, of course, in the latter part of the chapter, he gets into how you as an individual need to be, uh, need to be walking, what you need to be concerned about. But here... In Ephesians 4, he calls us to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's that idea of unity coming up again amongst God's people, his believers, his children. How does Paul say we can do this? How does Paul say we preserve that unity, we, pre we preserve that bond of peace? You know, there's only seven key truths that Paul brings up here. We draw lines in the sand all over the place. We divide over them. Different doctrines, different traditions. Paul brings up seven fundamental teachings. We absolutely have to be united on these seven. If you look in verse 4 to verse 6, that's where you find them. But other than that, other than those truths, those teachings, doctrines, if you will, what else did Paul say? In verse 2... This is how he says to walk worthy together with all humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Tolerance and love. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be accepting of everything that you do. What it means is even though I don't like you or I, don't, or I disagree with you, I don't agree with you, I'm still going to be nice to you. That's what that is. Tolerance and love. It's putting up with each other. I've been places, I'm only 23, uh, so I don't have a lot of experience to speak from, but where I was at in Iowa, 
Sadly, the Christians in my town, in my city, they were divided, not because of doctrinal issues, not because there were some people who were claiming Jesus is like this and others who were claiming he was like that. They were divided because they could not get along with each other. That's a very real problem today. And no, I don't think it's a real problem because I dealt with it in Iowa. It's a real problem because you can see it many places you go among God's people. Why do we not have connections with each other? It's because we have not taken the calling that Paul has given us here. To walk worthy with patience and humility, with tolerance and love towards one another. I want you to think about that idea. That in order for us to walk worthy of that calling, we have to walk worthy together. And the final thing I'll point out to you as we start this lesson is that without the proper motive, I say motive, but um, without the proper drive, mindset, attitude, heart, your actions don't really matter. Now sometimes when we approach a question like this, how do we build each other up in the Lord? What we want is a list of, of actions that we can do. How can we have better Bible studies? How can we hold better gospel meetings? What do I need to do on an individual level to build my brethren up? And we want specific actions, things we can do, maybe check off of a list, whether you look at it like that or not. There's a problem with that. If you're familiar with Ephesus, so we're here we are reading about them in the book of Ephesians, but there in Revelation chapter 2, we've been studying through the book of Revelation uh, over uh, on West Broad, and uh, here in chapter 2, Jesus is speaking. Let's, let's see what he has to say to the Christians of Ephesus. In Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and, rem and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You see this. If, if the Christians of Ephesus... They had doctrines and traditions and, and, and commandments and teachings. And, and they tested all of the people who were claiming to be teachers and apostles. They had all of that down. They had all of that right. They might have even had the question of how to build each other up right as far as the actions go. But Jesus said, I have this one thing against you. Many things they were doing right. One major fundamental foundational thing they had wrong. That is they left their first love. And because of that... Unless they repented and turned back to their first love, to God, they would fall. That's a very scary thought. So like I said, we're going to approach this lesson from a little bit different angle. At the end of the lesson, I'll point out many passages you can turn to to figure out the proper actions to have towards one another and the right attitudes to have. But the answer to our question fundamentally is the gospel. How do we build each other up in the Lord? It's by living according to the gospel. What do I mean by that? 
I think that there are four truths, four truths in pairs, two and two, that we absolutely need to have our life changed by. This isn't anything new. And sadly, there are some who will look at some of these thoughts and they'll say, well, those are basic. Those are very simple. Those are very fundamental. We all know those. We all live our life like that. Well, unfortunately, it's not the truth. That's not the case. Uh, some of these things get swept under the rug. We forget about them. For starters, there's two very demanding directives that we're given. When I say very demanding, I mean they demand everything from you. It's that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. You want to talk about how to build each other up. You cannot do it unless first your life is being driven by these two very demanding commands from the Lord. We'll look at a, pa- a few passages here in a moment to talk about them. And the final two truths is that there are two very overwhelming blessings from the Lord when we talk about the gospel, and that is His mercy and His grace. And those two blessings are not supposed to end with the Lord giving them to you. It's supposed to be a chain that continues with you giving them to others. Mercy and grace. Your life being changed by the gospel. So those are the, the four ideas I want us to think about this evening when we're talking about how to build each other up in the Lord. For starters, look with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. You can find this account recorded in, in both Matthew and Luke, and we'll look at both places. Um, but I wanted to go to Matthew first, because Jesus says something that's recorded in Matthew that's not in Luke. He puts a little bit more emphasis on it in this passage. Let's read it. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Luke will add, with all of your strength. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Does that in one way, shape, or form kind of floor you? Put maybe goosebumps on your neck? Jesus said, you think about your entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He said, all of that is summed up and connected together by these two commands. That's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight for these two things to bear. To love the Lord your God. And the way he says it, he's saying you need to love the Lord your God with your entire being. With your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Again, strength coming from uh, Luke's recording. I want us to break it down for a moment. We think, well, that's very basic. Of course I love God. Unfortunately, what happens is sometimes we only love God with our strength. That's what we saw Ephesus doing. See, they were concerned with their actions. They were concerned with what they taught. They were concerned with who they associated with. Their actions, their strength was absolutely devoted to God. Maybe their mind even was devoted to God. But what about their heart? Jesus said they had left their first love. What about their soul? They weren't totally caught up in God anymore. 
sometimes we can love God with maybe just our strength. We're really concerned about what we need to be doing to obey God correctly. Sometimes we only love God with our mind. We like to have the knowledge. We like to know what God has said. We like to know what he expects of us. But then we don't share that knowledge. The Pharisees were guilty of this. But then maybe we store that knowledge up and we don't put it to use in our own life. Sometimes we only love God with our heart. We have these great, uh, wonderful thoughts and feelings towards the Lord and we care a lot about Him. But for whatever reason, that's not enough to make us totally care uh, about what He said. It's not enough for us to make the decision as we're living our life to make sure whatever we think or do is totally guided by the Lord. And sometimes our soul. You think about your soul. Uh, I, I take it this direction. I think your life is bound up in God. Okay, If you're loving the Lord your God with all of your soul, it means you are absolutely 100% devoting your life to Him. It's no longer your life, but it is His. So you say, well, if I love the Lord my God with all of my soul, all these things are connected. Jesus is saying, love God with your entire being. That is a very weighty command. And He expresses as much when He says that the entire law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Don't sweep this one under the rug. Because like Ephesus was warned, unless you have this one right, nothing else really matters. And I'll say this further. Once you have this one right, everything else will fall into place. You see how that works? Let's think of an example here. An easy one is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a small man in stature. Giant man in faith in Luke chapter 19. In Luke 19, the first nine verses, let's go ahead and read that together. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. I want to pause there a moment. Uh, You probably are very familiar with the story and that's okay. But it's important to point out Zacchaeus would be absolutely hated by the Jews. 100% hated. Not annoyed. They wouldn't be annoyed with him. They wouldn't be frustrated with him. They would have hatred for him. They would be bitter towards him. They would be angry towards him. They would not like this man at all. Because he was so closely associated with the Roman government and so on. There's a long list of things. But I want you to understand there's a great hatred between uh, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, Sadducees, and and even the rest of the Jews and Zacchaeus. Take that into consideration. When you read about what he does. Verse 3 it says Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was. And was unable because of the crowd. For he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him. Zacchaeus hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him Gladly, Zacchaeus received Jesus gladly. When they saw it, the Jews, right? Pharisees. They all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, You can imagine, he's hearing the grumbling. He stops and says to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man did not come, 
has come to seek and save the lost, Jesus will say. He's come to seek and save the lost. Salvation comes to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a prime example. He's a prime example of loving the Lord your God with your entire being. First of all, he would have had to have been thinking about Jesus beforehand. You can almost imagine Zacchaeus the night before. Maybe he had heard news that Jesus was coming his way. And you think, oh, all right, I've really got to go see this man. I want to see who he is. I want to see if I can't at least talk to him or hear him speak. I want to know this Jesus that everyone is speaking about. You can see him almost, you can almost imagine him going to bed thinking about these things, waking up the next morning, putting on his clothes, putting on his shoes, and okay, I need to get ready. Where is he coming in at and going to meet him? He gets there, and he not only has the obstacle of the crowd of Jews who would be having disdain for him and probably not even wanting to allow him up front, he has the obstacle of being short, so he can't see over them. So he runs on ahead. He climbs up a tree. I don't know how old Zacchaeus is. He must have been fairly spry to get up the tree though. So he gets up the tree and he's watching for Jesus. We're not told that Zacchaeus waves Jesus down. We're not told that he shouts for him. But what we are told is that our master noticed him. Do you think God notices the people who are looking for him? Any occasion in scripture you see someone seeking God, God finds them. Of course, God probably already was watching them, right? God looks to Zacchaeus and he says, get down here and let me spend some time with you. And you have Zacchaeus who receives him very gladly. He's very thrilled with this. But, but here, Zacchaeus uses his strength. He runs to go and see the Lord and he goes through great difficulty climbing the tree to at least catch, catch sight of him. He seeks the Lord. Mentally, he was prepared to find where Jesus would be in his heart, he wasn't going to allow anyone around him to dis- deter him from finding Jesus. He was committed. And of course, we know from verse 9, his soul was found in God as well. Salvation has come to this house this day. Are you someone who is so committed? So committed. You think, wow, okay, Lane. Ah, how does We're asking the question, building each other up in the Lord. How does this apply? Like we said earlier, unless you're first committed in such a way, there's no way you can help anyone else out. But the second thing is, in case you're worried that you're only focused on yourself here, here we are, some 2,000 years removed, and we're still looking to a man like Zacchaeus to learn from him, to be encouraged by him. Do you think that when you are focused on loving the Lord with your entire being, that other people will see that and learn from it? And maybe imitate that walk. That's what we're talking about right now. We go to the scriptures in time and again, especially in the Old Testament. There's there's many lessons we can learn from how people live their lives. Because they were people who were trying to love the Lord with all their being. Zacchaeus is one of them. When you become one of them, certainly that is going to be the first and foremost way you're going to encourage anyone else. You're going to build anyone else up. They will see your devotion to God. And of course, they'll have the choice to imitate it or not. But the second thing, uh, the second thing that Jesus said there was that we love our neighbor as ourselves. You're familiar again with the, 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 the parable or the illustration Jesus uses of the Samaritan, right? The good Samaritan. And I was thinking where we are here, there's Flint Road that meets Park Road right down over here. And there's a park there. 
And could you imagine as you're driving your car, how many, I don't know how many come in that direction. I do. Uh, but there's a park there, Flint Park or something like that. And you imagine you're driving your vehicle here and you see a man in need. What example do we want? Maybe someone's got a broken down vehicle. Maybe you see a lost child. Maybe you see, uh, we could use the example here that Jesus does, a man who's been beaten and robbed. And what do you do? What do you do? Well, I've got to make it to that gospel meeting. It's almost 7 o'clock. I've got to get to worship. It's almost, uh, I don't know what time you guys meet. It's almost time to take the Lord's Supper. Because that seems to be the big one, right? We have a priest and we have a Levite who passes him by. They see him. It's not that they didn't know he was there. They see him and they purposely go the other way. Go around him. Then you have a Samaritan. This What would be thought of as a dirty Samaritan, right? Mixed blood. Someone who's not a full-blooded Jew. Who's not truly a child of Abraham. A Samaritan. The Samaritan comes by. Verse 33. He was on a journey. This guy had plans. He was probably on a time frame. On a schedule. He probably had limited resources, mind you. Sees the man and has compassion on him. Tell me that he did not have love for his neighbor. By the way, he didn't have a clue who this guy was. Didn't have a clue uh, what had happened to him. He just saw that he was in great need. Threw him on his own beast. Bandaged him up first, I suppose. Bandaged him up, put him on his own beast. Verse 34. Brings him to an inn. They get to the inn. And he goes to the innkeeper and says, no matter what it costs, no matter what you have to do, take care of this man. Here's a down payment. When I come back, I will repay you in full whatever else you spent. Didn't even know the guy. Didn't even know the guy one bit. Do you think that this is directly linked to loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How can you love your neighbor as yourself if yourself is not first found in God? You can't do it. You can't do it. But this man, who is a Samaritan, who wouldn't be very... Wouldn't be thought very highly of, especially spiritually speaking. He is the only one who stopped for this man. And look at what's said at the end here. Verse 37. Or I'm sorry, verse 36. Which of these men, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said to Jesus, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Mercy is a very, it's an incredible thing to consider. Mercy is something that we're shown. You think about Jesus coming down and dying for us. Now that, that was mercy and grace and action. Look at the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, does that sound like the man we might have just talked about? Helpless. He couldn't do anything for himself, but he was in grave need. He probably would have died without the Samaritan coming by. We were still helpless. And at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, we were the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man. 
But for a good man, perhaps someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love. We've been talking about love, love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We were justified by his blood. While we were enemies, we've been saved through the love of God. That was mercy. And you know what, what the encouragement is there from Paul? As he's reminding them, remember who you were. That's who God died for. Then he says, now that you've been justified, live in Christ. Walk that new life. And according to Jesus, that means loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And also according to Jesus, it means showing mercy. It means showing mercy. Go and do the same. I want to do the same. I want you to look at Psalm 68 with me. It won't be up here on the screen. If you want to follow along, you'll have to open your Bibles. Psalm 86. I put 68 up here. 86. (laughs) My apologies. I don't think I'm dyslexic, but we all make mistakes. Psalm 86. This is a Psalm of David, a prayer of David. We know David was a man after God's own heart. We also know David was a man full of mistakes. Right? And yet time and again his devotion to God came through. Let's look at the first ten verses together. It says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. For I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. And they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Just pause there for a moment. This is a great example of the devotion of David to God. He's distressed here. And he has great requests to make of the Lord The example we can learn from here is that this is the prayer life that we need. This is the devotion in our life to our God that we need uh, as people who are supposed to be loving him with our entire being. Do you have such an intense prayer life? It's not just in times of need when David was so uh, ardent in prayer to the Lord. It was also when he was rejoicing because of blessings. And he was very thankful to the Lord. It was also in times where he was simply praising God for who he is. He was very intense in his prayers to God. Cared deeply about the Lord. We might learn from this. But let's go on for a moment. Verses 11 through 13. 
Verses 11 through 13 go right back to that first point that we made. Loving the Lord our God with our entire being. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness towards me is great and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. This is loving the Lord your God with all of your mind, your strength, your heart, and your soul. Do you see what he says? You think about loving the Lord your God with your mind. What should you be doing with it? Devoting it to God. Seeking Him out. Wanting knowledge from Him. Wanting to learn His ways. David says, teach me your ways. Think about your strength. Again, how to act. David says that I will walk in your truth. We take what we learn, we take the devotion of our mind, and we put it to use through our body as best we possibly can. Devotion of mind, devotion of strength. You see devotion of heart. You know what's interesting about all of these things? I think David realizes, and I don't want to speak for him, but this certainly seems to be the case. David realizes that all of his being that he could offer up to God is not enough. He's not saying, Lord, I give all of these things to you. He's saying, Lord, help me give all of these things to you. Teach me so I can give you my mind, so I can give you my walk. Give me your truth. He says, unite my heart for me so I can give it to you to praise you and give thanks to you with all of my heart to glorify you. He's asking God to help him in this. Verse 14, of course, he recognizes that God is his deliverer from the depths of Sheol. You think about us, remember Romans 5 that we pointed out. We were the helpless, we were the ungodly, the sinners, and we were the enemies. And it's God, He is the one who delivered us from that lifestyle. Uh, we'll look at a, a, another thought about that here in a moment in Titus. Um, but our soul is bound up in the Lord. All four of those, all four of those uh, parts of our being, being given to God, and not just being given to God, but asking, beseeching the Lord on our behalf to help us. To help us. What humility. Let's look at the rest of Psalm 86. Verse 14 says, O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a hand and a band of violent men have sought my life. And they have not set before you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Just three things here. We're talking about the mercy and grace uh, aspect of the, of the gospel that we need to live our lives by. There's three things we see here. Number one, David is facing opposition. I want to let you know right now, if you don't already understand this, in your attempt to build others up, there's going to be great opposition. There will be obstacles that you have to overcome and that the other person or people will have to overcome. Who's putting them there? It's a theme that I feel like keeps coming up at West Broad. We've talked a lot about the war that we're in. This year, a lot about it. It just keeps seem, seeming to come up. But the battles that we're fighting, uh, sometimes they're physical in the sense that there are those who are among us in sheep's 
clothing, but are actually wolves who are seeking to devour us. But most of the time, it's a spiritual fight that we're in. And so there will be spiritual obstacles that we have to overcome. There's opposition. The second thing, and as we noted before with Zacchaeus, as we noted before with the Samaritan, there's witnesses to your actions. David is beseeching the Lord, and notice what David said in verse 17. He says, show me a sign for good. He said, work for me, Lord, so that they may see it. Now, in this case, it's to show the enemies that they might be ashamed and quit doing what they're doing. But you think about also what we're talking about. Endeavoring to glorify God, endeavoring to build the church up, to be one body before the Lord. Others will see that. Others will see that. In fact, that is a testament that is a testament to what the Lord can do with broken people. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. We all know what life is like before Jesus. We all know here what life is like after Jesus. You go from broken to repaired. Not really repaired, but really made new. Right? You leave that old, old life behind. You take on the new life in Christ. And finally, what does, what does David say about the Lord here? He says that you are a God of merciful and gracious. God is full of mercy and full of grace. And he's willing to give it to anyone. He expressed that by sending his son who died for everyone. Even though there are plenty of people who are still going to reject him. God is full of mercy and grace. And like we said earlier, the buck is not supposed to stop there. He expects his people to be full of mercy and grace. Look with me to Titus, if you will, or listen, that's fine too. But Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. I want you to see mercy, how it's been extended to us, and, and, and be thinking about how we need to be extending it to others. Titus 3, 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, mercy being given to the undeserving, that's a lesson for us. God's mercy extended to us when we were undeserving, as we're undeserving, we need to be mimicking that, we need to be doing the same. But here, mercy is directly tied to kindness. The reason for being kind to other people, uh, or even thinking about how Paul said it in Ephesians 4, uh, showing having tolerance for one another in love, is because of mercy. Our first uh, desire ought not to be pushing other people away from us, especially in times of difficulty, but it ought to be to extend that kindness, that mercy that our God has extended to us in the first place. See, grace. Earlier in Titus, in chapter 2, Titus 2 and verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory 
of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Grace brings salvation. This is the grace we receive from God. It brings us salvation. It makes us his own possession once again. It, it, it makes us his people once again. It gives us redemption. It gives us life. If this is how mercy and grace works, when God extends it to you, how ought mercy and grace work when you extend it to others? Hopefully in like manner. But finally... I want to give you, leave you with the thought that Paul, Paul has for us in 1 Corinthians 15. And this chapter really goes into the resurrection quite a lot. It's a really wonderful chapter. It's an encouraging chapter. Look at the first 10 verses with me. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He starts off by talking about the gospel, and how it's by the gospel that we stand, have our faith, have our salvation. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas in the twelve. And that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. What's the answer? What's the answer to how we need to be building each other? How do we build each other up in the Lord? The answer is living by the gospel. The answer is what Paul just said. Be molded by the Lord. He says it is by the grace of God that I am what I am and that in me all the work that I've done and you consider that Paul did a lot of work on behalf of the Lord. He said it was the Lord working in him. It was the grace of God working in him. And because Paul was so full of that grace from the Lord he couldn't help but allow it to come out of him and to other people. Paul is our example in that. Would, would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Holy God and Father in heaven. Lord, we humbly approach you now. We're mindful of how wonderful you truly are. Of how you have planned all of these things out before time even began. How you have been mindful of even us. We weren't around when your son came here. But Father, he was mindful of even us. We are so touched by this. We are thankful to you for thinking of us, for extending your love to us that we might be saved, that we might come to you to know you. And Father, we do earnestly pray that we might not overlook this, that Father, in our life, we might 100%, we might absolutely be devoted to you with all of our being. Help us in our mind to think only uh, righteously, godly, as you put it. Help us, Father, to know you. 
Father, we pray that as we come to know you, you help us to walk in your truth. That you mold us according to your grace. Help us to to show others the light that you've put into us, the light that we've seen uh, through your son when he approached us as enemies. God, we earnestly pray that you will be our joy, that you will be our consolation, and that our life will be totally bound up in you. Father, help us in this endeavor. Help us as your people to be one, to be united through your Son, and to have in our hearts and in our minds always to be reaching out to those who are still lost. We pray things in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly there's plenty of places you could go uh, if you want to consider specific ways, uh, actions, attitudes, apart from what we've talked about. Romans 12 is fantastic. Romans 12 is a fantastic chapter that talks about uh, our actions towards one another, being humble, uh, treating each other with great respect and love, opening our homes to each other, uh, not griping, not complaining. I would encourage you to read Romans 12. Read Romans 14. Uh, Romans 14 is something that might be swept under the rug all too often uh, with us. It's the idea that we might be in great disagreement. But we're in great disagreement because we both believe it's what we believe is what's coming from Scripture. How do you respond to that situation? Look to Romans 14. Paul, Paul has great instructions for us that we can learn from. Uh, practically speaking, the book of James is very, very good. Very good to help, help teach you what your daily walk ought to be like. We're actually studying James at West Broad right now. It's a fantastic book. But I think I've gone for quite a while. I wasn't really paying attention to the time. So I really hope you'll think about these things. That uh, what's the answer? What's the answer to building each other up? The answer is living your life according to the gospel. Having your life found in Christ. Which means that you're going to love God with everything you have. You're going to show that love to your neighbor. And what's more is you're going to be driven by mercy and grace. The same mercy and grace that you, you receive from God. So thank you for your attention. I think we're going to sing a song now. Um, and if there is anything that you need prayers for, uh, any, any strength that you need to receive from your brethren, or if you're just simply uh, going through some trouble in your life, uh, certainly we want to pray with you and maybe help you find the answers. So I want you to come as we stand and sing. <clears throat>